0: Hey, everybody. This is Alex.
1: Hey, it's Natasha.
0: And we are here to talk just for a second about Extra Crunch, TechCrunch's subscription product.
1: Extra Crunch is where a lot of our best analysis and follow-up stories lives. We focus a lot on startups, building, and even poke fun here and there.
0: It's true. I also write a daily column called The Exchange that's over on Extra Crunch. And the good news is, if you don't have EC access yet, we have a deal for you.
1: Yes, you can use, I think the best code there is, so don't tell anyone who doesn't listen to Equity because they're not invited. The code is EQUITY, all caps, for 50% off your Extra Crunch subscription.
0: So head over to techcrunchcom slash subscribe, use that code, make us look good internally. We say thanks across the internet, and now let's do a show. Hello and welcome back to Equity, Tech Rents venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex and I am joined by Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors and writer, author, I should say, of the recent mega Coinbase piece over on the site. Danny, how are you doing?
2: I'm doing all right. I mean, I, I don't know whether to read my my Coinbase uh, portfolio, my Robinhood portfolio, or just give it up and, and move to a, a cave.
0: I feel like that's a very... Fitting comment given the rapid fire news deluge we've been under in the last couple of days. I'm exhausted. And a cave sounds nice because there wouldn't be any Wi-Fi, so I couldn't do any work. But before we go all caveman and Stonehenge, Natasha, you're also here. How are you doing?
1: I'm good. I was just saying yesterday, there's never been a better time to be a journalist. So I will bring the optimism this week because I feel super important. And I will ride that as long as
0: I can. (laughs) Do you feel super important because everyone's trying to get your attention at the same time?
1: I think there's just so much that I have the power to elevate and amplify. And so, mwahaha. And I will continue to do that as the years go on.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, speaking of amplification and elevation, we are going to be doing both to a couple of things today on the show, including a passel of funding rounds focused on the early stages of the startup world. We do have some public market updates, a lot of big IPOs of unicorns this week to kind of chew through. And then we're going to wrap up with something a little bit different. We're going to break into the world of celebrity investing through the lens of the TikTok, I believe it is called, short form looping videos of humor, music, and dance, and how those stars are actually now showing up in our little startup world. So that's the rundown, everybody. And we're going to dive in first up with Funding Rounds, Career Karma, which Natasha, you covered. What's going on there?
1: Yeah, so Career Karma led by Ruben Harris is a matching tool that helps students get their way to the best bootcamp for their needs through balancing different things like financing, focus, job placement opportunities, and kind of stage of career you're at.
0: And by bootcamp, you mean like a coding bootcamp to learn how to write computer code?
1: Yes. Thank you for
0: clarifying. Coast Guard or Army? (laughs) Marines, Navy, Air Force.
1: But in all seriousness, I think their pandemic was interesting because they were trying to connect people during a time when coding bootcamps themselves had a little bit of stress in the beginning. Coding bootcamp is only as strong as a bull market sometimes because it has to place people into jobs. And so career karma was kind of impacted, but now kind of 10 months later has been profitable for the past five months is making between three to 15 million in top line revenue this year alone. The news this week is that they raised 10 million in a round led by initialized capital to create the community side of coding boot camps. So, think like a plug in to these online programs that exist.
0: So, a question about this because, on one hand, I love the idea of helping more students get more skills more quickly at a reasonable price point. On the other side, they're adding a layer of activity in between the student and the coding boot camps. So I'm curious where do they make their revenue from? Is it from the students or is it from the actual boot camps themselves?
1: They make their money when they place a student into a bootcamp. They take 10% of a student's proposed tuition. And so let's say Alex gets goes to Lambda School, sure. he pays 10,000. I don't even know how much Lambda School costs, but he pays 10,000. Career Karma will take 10% of that, but it won't come from their tuition. It will come from the company's marketing budget. And so it's kind of just being framed as like 10% of the tuition, but imagine it as kind of like a streamlined rate. Um, and then the only other note I'll add towards Career Karma is that it's smart that they're not letting customers pay them for reach because then all of a sudden the better capitalized coding schools would get a better slot, not as well capitalized ones wouldn't. I think it's good right now that we're seeing them kind of be modest in how many ways they're monetizing.
0: I like this. I'm surprised there's so much inbound demand from students for so many coding boot camps that there is enough of a business here for 10% of this to make a profitable company. I think that goes to show how behind the curve I am on how popular this method of learning how to develop is. I mean, Danny, maybe you and I can even have real careers someday and learn how to code.
2: <laughs> hey, one of us actually knows how to code because, I, uh, <laughs> but like, I, I, I'm a little, I am gotta be honest, I'm a little skeptical.
1: Yeah, I knew it, you know, let's hear it.
2: So so I, I think there's two directions here that I'm a little skeptical on. One is what you just said, Alex. I actually think a lot of bootcamps are very similar on completely unclear on how you're getting directed from one to the other, how it's meaningful. And, and particularly if they're taking 10%, like, What's the incentive to get you to a cheaper program that might be better quality, but you're actually literally going to make less money on that referral fee? Because that bothers me a little bit. The other piece here, though, is the founder, Harris, he said in our interview with Natasha that he sees the shift towards short-term credentialing as positive news for the startup. And and in my view, like one of the biggest challenges of getting out of the bootcamp world is like, it's great to take a 60, 90-day class or 180-day class in CS. The reality is, is computer science is really, really hard. It actually takes a lot of time to get up to speed. You know, we were talking about uh, Sketchy, the medical learning app that Natasha covered last week. You know, you don't learn medical school in ninety days. You can't learn computer science in much of the same way. And so, like, I am a huge fan of startups like Make School, which is sort of a re-envisioned bachelor's degree that's built around projects, that's built around accelerated learning. It takes time, and so I, I hope the long-term value here is that Career Karma can help you stitch together, if you will, a equivalent degree program. But I just don't think a lot of programs offer all the advanced classes you actually need to build out a full curriculum.
0: Yes, but we're not trying to replace four-year CS degrees. That's not, I think, what the idea behind Cody Bootcamps is. As languages get increasingly high level, and as we move towards a more no-code, low-code world, I think there is a, there's a space in the market to empower people to do some areas of development work without requiring going back and doing logic trees on whiteboards to prove that you read your initials, you know, CS 101 textbooks. I don't think we have to replicate that. I agree though, Danny, entirely with your point that there's only so much you can do in 60, 90, 180 days. But I just wonder if as languages get increasingly extracted from binary on-up to machine code, then it is possible to do quite a lot in that period of time and you can be effective in the market.
1: The thing I'll add here is that Career Karma is trying to tackle a blind spot for many coding boot camps, which is that they don't have this community alumni feature. The way that the Harvards and Stanfords of the world have so successfully. Whenever I meet a BU alum out there, it completely changes the conversation. And I don't know if coding bootcamps are at that stage of success or signal yet. And so career karma focusing on the alumni aspect and kind of keeping those students in a community, I think is long term smart, but definitely expect a lot more on the strategy. Ruben was even hinting that they might get into programming themselves down the road it's still a series A company. They've done a lot. And I'm sure we'll still see a lot more from them.
2: I I do think that's uh, the long term interest here is, you know, do they become the boot camp themselves, right? Do they intercept the students that are coming through the funnel? I mean, at some point, that's almost inevitable in this storyline, right? You first like grab the customers as they're coming through be part of the decision making. and They're like, well, let me give you something that's direct. And instead of taking a 10% referral fee, we'll take 100% of your tuition and lock it in. But (laughs) I want to talk on uh, another company, which is focusing on Polymorphic encryption, which I might add, is not something you're probably going to learn in a ninety-day coding bootcamp. But Alex, you covered a company called Skyflow, which is using a lot of cool advanced CS techniques to make data more
0: safe. And I'll tell you what, Danny, I learned all about polymorphic encryption while reading ninety seconds of a white paper we'll covering this round. So I am now the world's <laughs> leading expert. I was going to say. No, I mean, so so <laughs> this is a company that, that that I dig for a couple of reasons. They just raised a seventeen point five million dollars Series A led by Canvas Ventures. But critically, we just covered their seed round, I think it was back in like April or something. So it really one of these really fast kind of like double click rounds that we've seen a couple of this year. Welcome was another company that's kind of done this, like raise once and then raise again. And in this case, it's on the back of some relatively quick revenue growth. The company put its product into the market in July and has landed some seven figure customers. So what does it do? It does essentially, it holds all of your super sensitive data for you. And you can access it via an API. And polymorphic encryption is a way to allow for granular access to encrypted information, essentially. And so what that means is you can say, okay, you have this permission. You can see these fields of data, of information that we've stored over in Skyflow. And the company's thesis, as far as I can tell, is there's more and more data being stored about all of us over time. Companies don't want to have it on their own servers or their own cloud because it's very dangerous if you get hacked. So we'll just export that to skyflow they will handle the security of it and let us access it as we need to Uh, i really dig it i hope it works because i'm still incensed about equifax and how they arrogated to themselves the authority to own my information the rat bastards and then they lost it and then they got barely a slap on the wrist which made me hate both corporate america and the government at the same time so a world in which my data which i would like to have myself is at least better secured is a world that I want to live in. I'm covering a company also sort of in this space, taking a different angle. But
2: one of the lessons I've learned covering this space is like we're at the end of big data. And a huge focus is actually on miniaturizing big data into smaller data. And the idea is like, look, if you have petabytes of data on your customers, all that's PII. Mm-hmm. A lot of that can be leaked. Thousands of employees at larger companies could have access to that data. It just It's like this huge, red, bright target. For hackers and anyone else who's trying to get access to it, more and more companies are asking this question of like, how do I narrow the funnel on the data here? How do I actually take the data, either encrypt it through a polymorphic encryption algorithm? Can I synthesize the data in a way that I have like a fake data set, but it's representative of the original data set so there's nothing to actually hack? But companies are getting a lot smarter, mostly because the policy around here has changed. It started with GDPR in Europe, Mm -hmm. and then most recently with Prop, I believe, 24 in California, there's just more and more sensitivity to the fact that you don't want to have petabytes of data stored in, you know, unpasswordless databases somewhere else in the universe.
1: I think something that I get confused on when I see these startups pop up is like how, how many of these can actually reach scale and win? Like how, how much of a need is there for all these niche plays?
0: What, one data point on that point, Natasha, is that according to CEO Anshu Sharma, formerly of Storm Ventures and then formerly of Salesforce before that, they have about eight figures of pipeline currently. Now, not all of that will convert, of course, but with mm-hmm. their first deal being north of a million, I don't know how many years it was four it could have been two. There seems to be at a minimum enough demand to get this company to a series B scale. Past that, I think it gets more tricky. And I, I agree the market could become crowded, but I would guess that the inertia of collecting more data is probably big enough that we're going to end up with more total data stored and that this miniaturization that Danny's discussing is probably a longer term trend. And so there's going to be oceans of PII or personally identifying information out there that you want to keep safe. If Skyflow says, give us all your radioactivity, give us all the crap that's dangerous. We'll hold it for you. Just give us some money that could be attractive. So I think it's cool, but I don't know the answer to your question.
2: I think it's a huge space. I think there'll be a couple of different angles on it. So as you heard, there's a couple of different technologies and approaches you can take to protecting that data. Mm -hmm. And different companies are going to take different angles on how they want to go about doing it. Let's say it's health data. You can't just sort of fake health data, right? You can't create a synthesis, a data set that is like representative of the health data. You have patients, they have to have their own health data. So you have to protect it in a different way than say a product company that's just trying to save like traffic data on their own website. So different companies are going to pick different solutions. I think the market's going to be massive I, I think yeah. data governance I think we're talking like tens of billions in revenue over the next decade so I, I think it's a huge market but I want to move on to another huge market which is not in the enterprise but if you work at an enterprise you might need it uh, and that <laughs> is calm <laughs> which is a mental health and therapy startup we learned this week that it has raised 75 more dollars in venture capital at a two billion dollar valuation Lightspeed previously did the round uh, which raised 150 million in the series B. This round, I think, was led by also Lightspeed. Yeah, so
0: I guess they doubled down. There you go. The world's, the world's most minor correction, Danny. They didn't raise seventy-five dollars at a two billion dollar valuation. They raised seventy-five million dollars at a two God, billion dollar valuation because they didn't just sell three just shares. implied just implied. Their <laughs> annual subscription
1: <laughs> is seventy-five dollars. <laughs> they raised one customer.
2: <laughs> they, they one month. <laughs> uh,
1: what a nerd joke! Like, can we not laugh that hard? Okay, thirty-five million. <laughs> I mean,
2: tell the number.
0: If you don't laugh at that joke. You shouldn't A, be on this show, let alone listening to it. So I hope everyone out there is currently laughing. I've now signed up for Calm because I have to deal with abusive coworkers who
2: constantly correct my my foibles. But uh, let's talk a little bit about Calm because I think, you know, they have this, uh, this subscription model. And again, it's one of these rare companies in the consumer space that's actually pulled off subscription with everyday people.
0: Not only does that, they've also built out a relatively aggressive business arm. Denny. I think you can buy calm for your employees, kind of on Mars. And so, if you want to create more seats and more revenue, admittedly at a lower per head price, that's possible as well. So, I'm going to be really curious to see if that adds revenue stability, because as we all know, consumers churn. Businesses tend to be a bit more stable, and that can make them a bit more attractive down the road for an IPO.
1: Totally, calm, you know, responded to the coronavirus a little differently than its rival headspace. But something to to watch from calm was that they got a partnership with Kaiser Permanente. And that is hard to do. And now basically any patient within that Kaiser Permanente world has come for free. We also are seeing Headspace kind of give free access to its platform to people who are unemployed, healthcare workers. There's a couple of different ways that mental health apps have kind of taken this time, used it as a charitable time, but also got a lot of user growth within their umbrellas.
0: I love that model. I I love the idea that more people can get access to this stuff. And you know, I actually paid for a year of Headspace once. I think it was like a hundred bucks and I thought it was perfectly worth it. So I'm excited to see these products, people working more on themselves, companies giving access to it, kind of an overall win and as Danny said, an attractive business. But we're going to pivot and we're going to talk about one more round, which is Squire, a company that I hadn't heard of actually, Natasha. I've been behind on this company. So tell us what their vertical is because it's a lot of fun. And two, what happened to their valuation?
1: Yeah. So Squire is a startup co-founded by Sanj Laurent and David Salvant. And they create technology for barbershops to work better, whether that's scheduling your appointments or paying or just managing the overall process of, of what it is to go to the barbershop. Kind of following the trend of startups that have double clicked and raised within the year, Squire last raised in June and is back this week with a 59 million Series C, 45 million of which is in equity and 15 million of which is in debt financing.
0: Awesome. And its valuation went up from 85 in June of this year to 250 million today. Did it triple it since June?
1: Yeah, so it, it it nearly tripled its valuation. I think the, the co-founder was saying it's even a little bit above 250, but he wouldn't tell me how much above, so I gave 250. <laughs> um, but we the, the reason why is that they kind of went from zero when barbershops first closed to between 10 to 20 million in ARR in 10 months. And it was that really fast growth that got CRV's attention with their series B. And now they have attention from Tiger Global, Trinity Ventures, and the one who led the most recent round, Iconic Capital. And so Squire is this really cool example of how, showing us like what barbershops are are prioritizing as they reopen and it's technology that makes it easier to do business.
0: Danny, 10 to 20 million in ARR means 12, right? You're a VC. (laughs) Wasn't it... it, uh... Wasn't it growth from 10 to 20? Or is
2: it actually like we got a range?
1: They gave me a range. They, they said that they grew. Well, that's obnoxious. Um, yeah.
2: <laughs> and I say that's obnoxious because, well, it, it probably means it changes by month. Maybe barbershops are much more popular in the holidays. So they're, you know, the 20 is like the Thanksgiving week ARR and, and the 10 is like normal. Either way, I mean, it obviously grows from zero to 10 in 10 months. Very, very strong. I think that there is a little bit of magic here. We've seen this with a bunch of other scheduling software. Is it MindBody that does it for um, mm-hmm. a lot of the...
1: They're competing with MindBody.
2: Yeah. So they're competing with MindBody. I, look, there, there's a huge amount of value here, right? Much in the way that Yelp and other apps are the funnel. We were just talking about career comma. It's the same thing, right? You own the customer relationship. And once you do, people can advertise against that. You can charge the, the retailers and the barbershops themselves. It's an amazing model. You also have this repeated business, which is unlike a lot of other, you know, forms, you don't have a direct relationship, you always want to schedule, you want to schedule in advance, and you do it every month, presumably, unless you're Alex, um, in which case you're doing it every week, um, but probably by yourself.
1: I agree. I think the business of barbershops is a little bit more repeated and loyal than other grooming-esque appointments. But beyond that, and I actually think you guys will like this, is that they raised that $15 million in debt financing because with the Series C, they're going to go into banking as a service. So add on a fintech wow. play and start making it easier for these mom-and-pop barbershops to to secure loans and that could go many ways, but I think mm. it is smart for them to be kind of growing that way. It's, they're also going into Canada, Australia, UK, a lot to come.
0: I mean, we, we all know that there's companies out there now that offer banking as a service APIs. You can plug that stuff into your product and offer quite a lot more relatively easily. I was going to say, you know, vertical SaaS plus payments is a great model, but vertical SaaS plus payments and a layer of FinTech on top. I mean, I just, I, if customers want it, hell yeah, why not? I, I, I like it quite a lot. That's going to put a cap in our funding round coverage for this particular week. We are now going to jet through some relatively breaking news over the last two days about the public markets. Let's be brief to avoid boring everybody, but DoorDash had a good pricing run and then an amazing debut. If you're a little bit behind, its first range that it shot for was $75 to $85 a share, wound up pricing at 102 and then closed its first day at $189. Danny, mispriced IPO, attractive oh, here we go retail again. stock. What's the, it uh- a- It's like, well, let's get Bill
2: Gurley on the line again <laughs> to complain about IPO pops. I'll use my um, landline.
0: <laughs> you know,
2: it is, it is absurd. Well, I mean, you know, as of checking the ticker, you know, a couple minutes before we, we recorded this show, it's actually down 10 bucks, down 6%. <sighs> but like as always, there's a lot of variation. I believe the float was actually very, very small in the case of DoorDash. Am I
0: completely off? No, that was my impression is what we see here is, and I have a post coming up on TechCrunch.com about this. I was going to finish it, but we had to record. So it's going to go out after the show. We were seeing a, a, co- a combination of factors. One, a very thin float, a lot of retail demand that really skews the supply demand curve, making it much harder to get the first trade done. It's a much higher price. We're also seeing the impact of brand, which has been super key in 2020 IPOs. And of course, we're seeing a lot of investors take money and try to stick it into things that generate yield, AKA in this case, growth. So it's very attractive. Because DoorDash, of course, has had one of the most amazing years in business we've seen in a company going public. Just insane growth during the COVID-19 era. Similar with C3.ai, also went public earlier this week. was shooting for $31 to $34 a share. Priced at $42. Today, is worth $116 a share, up 178%. This company is fascinating because it's not growing at all. Hasn't grown for a couple of quarters. And last night I had a call with Tom Siebel at 7 p.m. I came back to the office, logged on and he canceled on me. So I didn't get to ask him my questions. So I don't have anything more to add about that other than I don't know how you get that revenue multiple with flat growth. The,
1: The thing that I'm thinking of, because I care most about the third one in our lineup today, Airbnb, which is set to still price, correct? By the time of recording, at least.
0: Yes. By the time we started this recording, Airbnb had not started to trade, but we were hearing $150 a share.
1: Awesome. And so Airbnb is entering and is, is pricing at this really busy IPO week where companies are where DoorDash was kind of like the OMG moment. Um, and so I'm curious, Alex, you talked to Alfred Lynn at Sequoia, which has invested in Airbnb. Do you feel like they are kind of very confident heading into the final like public market reception time of Airbnb? Or is that, you know, is the jitters of this week not really showing up?
0: Alfred did not sound jittery. Uh, okay. You know, look, Look, if you if you owned shares of DoorDash, and it did so well yesterday, and you also were a pre-IPO investor in Airbnb, your confidence level has to be approaching 100%, especially because it priced so far above its range. Keep in mind that you know Airbnb was looking at an initial range of 44 to 50, that went up to 56 to 60, and then it priced at 68. So even just at the IPO price, if it was flat, it would have been a coup for the company as a fundraising event, as a branding event, as a way showing that it's back, you know? But it's probably going to go up very steeply. In fact, we know it's going to go up by at least 2x. And then, of course, we have Affirm, up, uh, Roblox, Upstart, and w- a Wish coming up soon. So we have a number of you know, other IPOs that should also be in the next week or two. Danny, is that enough IPO coverage or do you want more? I can give you more, but...
2: I don't think that's good. I mean, the only only other su- little subtle story here is on DoorDash. I think it's important to note that SoftBank actually has a return, something we don't often hear in the SoftBank Vision Fund world, but uh, according to the numbers we saw, I believe on CNBC, um, SoftBank Vision Fund turned its 680 million dollar DoorDash investment, which I might add is the float for for C three AI, into 11.5 billion dollars at the opening price on Wednesday, and so that is what a 14 15x return on a serious amount of money over the Vision Fund, and I believe 11.5 billion dollars is roughly their investment in, in WeWork. Hey, so one hole plugged. Wow. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> And, also, and I will also point out that I do think that C3.ai, despite the fact that it gets no attention, owns the AI talk ticker. I mean, it they does. got AI.
0: Like, how crazy is that? I mean, it's that's got to be worth something. Good. Well, in, in, <laughs> I, I would laugh at you and say no, Danny. But in the era of Robin Hood, maybe. Maybe it's a bit like a good domain. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I want to throw in one, tiny, one more thought here because I, I forgot to bring it up earlier. We have seen a lot of what we thought were frothy private valuations get absolutely wrecked by the public markets they've they've been way under and uh to give the throw alfred a bone because i was unkind about him earlier and i'm gonna get an email about that so please don't we were talking about this a little bit and he said look you know doordash was always expensive when it was private it was expensive at every round and so was airbnb so to see people valuing these companies and levels that look expensive to us now isn't a huge surprise. And I thought that was a fair argument. But also, I'm really curious to see what's going to happen to companies that are raising late-stage rounds. Because what can investors say to them if they want a high valuation or higher than the private investors want? DoorDash sold stock at a $16 billion valuation this summer. Now it's worth a multiple of that. So a valuation that appeared to us to be kind of ludicrous was actually dramatically under what the market would bear at the IPO price, and then now it's current trading price. So I wonder if VCs are going to get squeezed and have to pay up a lot more during this IPO cycle for late stage rounds. But let's go ahead and stop talking about dollars and cents. I'm going to give Danny 15 seconds to make a book plug. And then we're going to talk about the TikTok.
2: I think we're doing the book plug later. Um, So let's talk about TikTok first, because then we'll we'll increase the quality of the conversation by talking about books.
1: (laughs) Oh, no. Okay. (laughs) So this week, we saw that Josh Richards, who is a TikTok star previously of the Sway House, which is one of the many TikTok mansions that have kind of popped up over Los Angeles as influencer homes. Josh Richards is joining Remus Capital, an early stage venture firm, as a venture partner. And as I'm sure we will get into, not super new to see celebrities get into the venture space. They have huge reach. They can do a lot for, especially, consumer businesses with a simple Instagram story. And so, Maybe the place to start with with um, the Josh Richards conversation is like, if we, if we have to be bullish on this transition, what would we say? Like, what is good about this transition? And then we can make the jokes because I know there will be jokes. But let's start with why this makes sense. Alex first.
0: Okay. I have been critical in the past of celebrity investing because it's always struck me as a little bit frivolous. But I think that's because I've underestimated the cultural import of people of the moment. And according to every single group text that I'm on with my friends, TikTok is the thing. So if you are an enormous star in the TikTok world, getting you involved with the company makes a lot of sense. And my my thought here is that I think in the old days, we would have seen more endorsements as opposed to investments. You know, you would say, like, if we're going to get, you know, Josh Richards or Charlie D'Amelio or um, uh, Bryce. I'm reading from the notes. Bryce Hall. I love it. <laughs> to, to endorse We're your product. already did a long tail of our knowledge for TikTok starting. Yeah, no, I mean I, I see a lot of TikToks, but I don't know who the people are because I'm not cool at all. But I think now with TikTok being so popular and having so much cultural resonance with people that are out there using their dollars, so kind of in market influence, it's probably reasonable that these people are going from being endorsers to being investors because at once they have more money themselves and they have enough power to probably demand a seat at the table to get some of the upside, to get a piece of the pie. So I want to make jokes, but I won't. I'll just say that in the past, celebrity investing has had a mixed track record. But in this case, I think bringing attention via celebrity and TikTok makes a lot of sense.
1: Okay, Daniel, let's hear your pros and cons, and then I will finish this off.
0: I mean, I I think the
2: big question is always, do the celebrities help the startup or the startups help the celebrities? I mean, I I think some celebrities have made a lot of money on their investments. I think in many ways, celebrities get access. And in, in many ways, I'm not sure that they actually create the value for these companies, but because of the celebrity status, they sort of get an allocation that they otherwise wouldn't have been able to get. You know, obviously, if you're having a startup that targets Gen Z, TikTok is a platform to go about do that. I just don't think it helps anyone else. You know, I, I just think about the companies like, okay, let's let's talk about Skyflow. You know, does is, is the polymorphic encryption data security company get Josh Richards to help on what? I'm kidding. Of course not. So it's D C. And and that's ultimately, like, you know, I, I think it's always about these brand plays. You know, I'm in New York. We have a ton of successful brand plays because of this. So, like, May Josh Richards endorses Roe in its next round and is, like, the the next... Who's the guy in the Cialis commercials? I forget which of the famous movie stars is on there. I no, no, I don't know. No that. one knows of this group.
0: that's not, we're, we're not that demographic, Danny. <laughs> yeah. Maybe you are, but...
2: yeah. That, this is where the show, we're, we're just taking it right to the gutter. So, I, look, I, I think there are definitely startups that can use this. I think it's fine to be a venture partner. Josh has been very entrepreneurial in getting a bunch of stuff out there. From what I've heard, the guy makes a F-ton of money saving our, our, our producer, Chris Gates, some work there, but an F-ton of money doing all these sponsorship deals. So, I, I think it's fine. I just think we have to, like, not change coverage and what we focus on and which companies make money Based on which celebrities are attached to which companies. Like it's always good to go back to the dollars and cents. And so I don't think it changes what we do here at TechCrunch. I'm certainly not going to cover a story. I actually even pitched stories that
0: were like, Josh Richards has invested in this company. I was like, I don't know who that is. Like this did not work. In my experience of talking to celebrities in and around technology events more broadly, I talked to a a former Doctor Who about Surface once. That was a fiasco. But I did enjoy my chat with uh, Jared Leto at at a box event because one, I got to take a picture with him and I was topless. (laughs) That was funny. And two, he actually had some pretty good ideas about startups. So I think there is the occasional investor who is also a celebrity who can do some reasonable things. I'm curious to see how this bears out. Ashton Kutcher's investments have been kind of up and down. So we'll see. But I'm not going to be dismissive of the kids.
1: I think, you know, long term, the thing to track is TikTok actually going to get people into venture. Is Josh Richards actually going to learn how to do a deal or is he just going to be used as kind of like a reposting and, and reach arm? There's nothing wrong with reach being his sole quality and and use in a venture firm. Like as one operator scout friends put it, she said one one repost from Josh Richards could do more for any startup than a VC could do in their lifetime. And it's true. Like I, I, don't want to dismiss how important reach is, and it's a lot more than what a lot of early stage venture capitalists do do for their companies. I can feel Danny disagreeing with me. <laughs> but the last note I'll make is if we do see this happening more and more, this conversation is going to keep coming up. And I think what we should focus on as a publication is this transition of influencers going for equity instead of brand deals, and seeing what these TikTok stars are actually doing. Within the venture firms. I don't know if we'll ever get that kind of access, but we can try and like report on it diligently from there. But I agree. It's not news to, to if Josh, you know, invests in a company yet.
2: I I think at the end of the day, building a startup is about building a startup. That's the tautology of today. What, what I mean by that is it's all about, you know, the operations of the company, how you're converting all of your inbound leads into actual sales or users, converting them onto the platform, et cetera. So like, Josh Richards, you know, fixes your top of the funnel problem for a consumer, particularly brand, particularly D2C company. That's great. You know, 10 million people get exposed. You would have paid millions of dollars potentially in Instagram ads, Facebook ads, in order to get the same kind of reach. And because Josh is doing it, people might actually like do something, right? They might actually click the link and follow through sure. on it in a way that they wouldn't if it was advertising. But at the end of the day, and this is where I, I kind of get uh, you know uh, annoyed by this sort of comment of like, well, it's more valuable than an EPC. it's like. At the end of the day, you have to build a company, you got to have leadership, you've got to have teams, you've got to have good product and engineering, marketing, all those components have to work together, because otherwise, those leads are worthless. I mean, you can get a million people to eyeball you, and then everyone leaves 10 hours later, and they never come back.
1: But do VCs do that? Like, I'm curious, I guess I just, I just don't think that early stage VCs really do that as much as we don't want to have that conversation sometimes. Like, I don't think VCs are doing as much as they think they are to help a company stay
0: alive. Even more than that, I mean, presumably these companies are also doing that. No one's saying because they have Josh Richards or some other TikTok person, they're going to be fine. It's they already have a solid engineering team, marketing team, executive team, three interns in a closet doing all the code, you know, and you layer TikTok on top of that or you slather TikTok on top of that, whatever, and then off you go. We have to stop here before we get into trouble with TikTok. But ladies and gentlemen, uh, I think we are going to see celebrities from every single social platform over time end up in this world because there's too much money to not attract people that can attract attention. Danny, last word to you. For those of you who would like a more you know, superior
2: cultural experience to TikTok, oh. the annual TechCrunch book guide for 2020 has been released with Woo-woo. comments and recommendations on 18, 19 books from all kinds of VCs, including Alec Wilhelm uh other tech run traders and uh many VCs so everyone from Roy Bahad at Bloomberg Beta dark candidate index Alexi our former editor who's at dream machine uh Gary Tan a bunch of others joining us Matt Akko look at the books go buy books because you will learn a hell of a lot more from books
0: than the latest Swayhouse uh
2: video launch on TikTok
0: and just to close us out here uh my recommendation is the one that you need to read Uh, So go to Danny's post, find my entry, read it, and then buy those books because they're fantastic and they will change your mind and you'll be thankful to me. And with that, equity is out of here. Goodbye.